0: Brian McClanahan Show, episode 211. Are you ready to think locally and act locally? Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Great. Glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And, of course, subscribe to my YouTube page at Brian McClanahan, where you can watch this podcast. If you like the Brian McClanahan Show, go to brianmcclanahan.com for his last support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. You can also get your McClanahan Academy, or I'm sorry, McClanahan Show gear, I should say, at redbubble.com. It's always a great thing to do. Get your Brian McClanahan Show logo on a t-shirt, on a wall clock, on stationery, on all kinds, stickers, all kinds of cool things. And of course, you can support the Brian McClanahan Show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. I was going to say that, and then... Lost my train of thought. McClanahanAcademy.com, always free to enroll. And those that do enroll get the best deals on forthcoming courses. I have one coming up on reconstruction and recreation. Hopefully in a couple of weeks that will be out, if not by early April, somewhere in there. But we're, I'm working on it. So uh, we've got one coming up. McClanahanAcademy.com is going to be an awesome course. Essentially, it's part two to the War for Southern Independence. So you want to pick that one up. Uh, And, and of course, you can always get 10% off any McClanahan Academy courses by simply going to McClanahan Academy, enrolling, and then using the coupon code PODCAST to get that 10% off. Why pay full price if you're a podcast show listener or a Brian McClanahan show listener when you can get it for 10% off? Use the coupon code PODCAST and you will do that. Also, go to learntruehistory.com. You can support the show that way, learntruehistory.com, T-R-U-E. It is my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. Pick up that great website, 20-plus courses. I teach there, Tom Woods, Kevin Goodsman, Jason Jewell, Brad Berzer, Bob Murphy, Jeff Herbner, a whole lot of great instructors. So you're going to want to get in on that deal as well. I mean, it's just a fantastic offering, 20-plus classes for very little money. And we do have Q&As and all kinds of cool stuff with that. So get your Tom Woods Show Liberty Classroom or Tom Woods Liberty Classroom through my affiliate link. Learn True, T-R-U-E-History.com. Uh, All right, well, let's talk about the uh, topic of the day, and it's actually a listener-requested episode. So going through my email, and I do get these things, so if you want to send, shoot me an email with a, with a suggestion, I do read them. But I'm going to read this, uh, this particular suggestion. It says, um, Dr. McClanahan, thanks as always for continuing to put out great content I know you've covered this issue in the past, but maybe an upcoming episode on the recent Tim's SCOTUS decision on the Eighth Amendment and asset forfeiture is needed. This is another perfect example of conservatives and libertarians praising the decision because it happens to be an issue they agree with. Thanks to you, I now spend half my time on social media pouring out, pointing out, excuse me, to my conservative friends, that the bill of rights did not apply to the States and that this was not a win for constitutional government. This is now just another area where the general government is given power of the States. And to be clear, I'm an opponent of asset forfeiture and equitable sharing, but I'm not happy with this decision. I knew what the outcome would be when, during oral arguments, conservative Justice Gorsuch ridiculed the notion that it's 2018 and we're still debating incorporation. The disappointing part of the decision was that it was 9-0. Not a single justice disputed the idea of incorporation, and the decision itself only paid lip service to the issue. The decision recognized Barron v. Baltimore and that the Bill of Rights didn't apply to the states, but then spent almost no time in explaining how incorporation was proper. The closest anyone came to dissent was Justice Thomas's concurring opinion that incorporation should happen through the Privileges and Immunities Clause instead of the Due Process Clause. Can anything be done to help more people see this was not actually a win for constitutional government? Is there any hope of, justice being appointed, of a justice being appointed who doesn't agree with incorporation? So I'm going to talk about this Tim's decision, but I'm going to work backwards. First, let's start with that last question. Is there any hope of a justice being appointed who doesn't agree with incorporation? No. I'll just flat out say no. There's no hope of that. Uh, incorporation, and even if you look at this decision, incorporation has become so ingrained in the modern legal profession from the law schools through the entire profession. I mean, of course, you go to law school, you're going to be told incorporation is the law of the land. theres I don't think there's any way you're going to find a judge at any time that doesn't agree with incorporation, at least not in the next several decades. You might, if, if enough people start going to law school who don't believe in it, and they go out and they work, and then they get appointed as a judge. At some point, maybe when we're seeing more and more people that don't believe in a corporation, but it's it's very it's going to be very hard to find that. And of course, then you run into the issue, and some people will say, "Well, I mean, you you run into all kinds of legal problems if you don't agree with it, and you try to go against it. Well, then you're going to have you're going to have all kinds of problems with your law license. So uh, you've got that. Um, now, if you're a judge. You make a ruling and, of course, you get away with it. And We see it happen all the time. Judges make stupid rulings all the time. In this case, it would be a, a good ruling. but um, So you'd have to be a judge at some point to really work to overturn this. And, of course, you've got to work through the system. So this could, take, this could take decades for it to happen. And we need more people, of course, in law schools who believe that incorporation is not settled fact, that Gorsuch is not right, that incorporation is debatable. Um, that this is a fairy tale of the progressive left from the 1950s and 60s. And that no way did the uh, 14th Amendment, or was it ever intended, to incorporate the Bill of Rights. Now, there were people that said it, but of course we know through ratification uh, that wasn't the case. And we know that there are Supreme Court decisions, i.e. the slaughterhouse cases, where it clearly said that the Bill of Rights was not incorporated uh, against the state's by uh, the 14th Amendment. So we have we have a legal precedent there. It's just getting judges who want to believe that, and they have to go through the law school first and then become judges. So maybe in 20 years, 30 years, as we have some younger people that do listen to this podcast, that do go to law school, I know for a fact we have them, I have them write me all the time, maybe they become judges at some point, and maybe then we start to see a change in this entire mess that's become the national constitution. Uh, can there be any? Can anything be done to help more people see this is not actually a win for constitutional government? Well, you can keep typing it up, keep talking to them. And that's all you can do. That you have to win them over, and you can't always do it with a chainsaw. You got to do it with a scalpel. So, um, of course, I know that the person that wrote this would say, "Look, I agree with you, but this is bad because of this, this, and this." I mean, these are the things that you have to say. The ends don't justify the means. Um, we have to go about it the right way. And when you look at this particular decision, I'm going to go back and, and look at parts of the decision, particularly Thomas's dissent, because that is the most worthwhile part of the entire des, uh, decision to read. All the rest of it, who cares? Uh, there is one paragraph I'm going to point to in the rest of it, but all the rest of it is just hogwash uh, because, of course, this, of this idea of substantive due process, which is completely ridiculous. And even Clarence Thomas points that out. Substantive due process is a fairy tale. And if we believe in substantive due process, then, gosh, you might as well say that the uh, Dred Scott decision was the perfect, or the, the right legal decision. I mean, because that's essentially what they use. And if you ask them that, if you ask a, a Supreme Court justice, I mean, do you believe in Dred Scott? No. Well, but you just ruled in substantive due process. You just used that to to, uh, to find this this law was, or this decision was unconstitutional. Whatever it is, you, you pin them down on that. Well, they don't really have an answer for that because they don't want to be on the side of Dred Scott, but yet they are with this decision. So the progressives need to be hammered for that all the time. Even the conservatives need to be hammered for that. They're, they're the same thing. Uh, you're creating rights out of thin air, um, rights that don't necessarily exist. Um, and, and you're interpreting the Constitution in a way that was never designed to be interpreted. And in fact, the Supreme Court actually said that in the Timbs decision. Timbs v. Indiana. So all you have to do is keep pointing out the illogical positions that they advocate. Ask your libertarian friends: Do you believe in the Dred Scott decision? Because if you don't, then you can't believe in this decision either. Uh, you you have to you have to be consistent in that. Now, um, I think that's the only way to go about it. You, know, you 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 can't be the the angry guy out there trying to uh, you know just pector to people and say that you're completely wrong. You got to do it in a way again with a scalpel, and so I can go on this podcast and and make fun of things and say things that, uh, you know, I normally wouldn't do if I'm really trying to persuade someone who doesn't agree with me. Uh, this podcast is for the already indoctrinated. This is this is for people. Most of the time, you already think like I do. I mean, can occasionally we get people that don't think like I do, and they listen, and then they learn something, and and uh, maybe they change their mind, maybe they don't. I'm just happy they listen. Um, but regardless, you have to go with a scalpel. And I think the best scalpel argument against this incorporation idea is Dred Scott. Substantive due process is a bad idea. Or uh, when you hit them with the Hugo Black, so you agree with the Klan then, uh, hit them with that. I mean, make them uncomfortable because you have to make them defend the idiots that came up with, with this idea of incorporation. And you have to make them defend a position that someone who is uh, and, and uncomfortable with... Uh, the 19th century, in particular, and most Americans are uncomfortable with the 19th century. It just is what it is for me, but they're uncomfortable with it. Uh, you're going to make them, you're going to make them squirm a little bit when you when you attack them these ways. So, uh, bring up Dred Scott, bring up Black and Ku Klux Klan. I mean, I do this in and how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America in the last uh, last half of the book. I get into that. So bring that up with them. Uh, that's the fun part. Now on to the Tims decision, uh, because the Tims decision. Is uh, a, an interesting decision, and let me just uh, tell you what happened here. And this, the problem is from the beginning of this particular decision. So we we can criticize the Supreme Court for for arguing how they did, and of course coming down on this decision the way they did. But listen to what it says at the beginning: Tyson Timms pleaded guilty in Indiana state court to dealing in a controlled substance and conspiracy to commit theft. At the time of Tim's arrest, the police seized a Land Rover SUV Tim's had purchased for $42,000 with money he received from insurance policy when his father died. The state sought civil forfeiture of Tim's vehicle, charging that the SUV had been used to transport heroin. Observing that Tim's had recently purchased a vehicle for more than four times the maximum $10,000 monetary fine accessible against him for his drug conviction, the trial court denied the state's request. So here we have a trial court in the state of Indiana essentially saying, no, State, you can't do this. The court, the jury, said you can't seize that vehicle. It was purchased with a life insurance policy. No drug money was used. So the trial court was 100% correct. Okay. The vehicle forfeiture, the court determined, would be grossly disproportionate to the gravity of Tim's offense and therefore unconstitutional under the Eighth Amendment's excessive fines clause. Here's the problem. What they should have said is it's unconstitutional to the Indiana court, which actually the decision brings up. Even the Indiana Constitution says (laughs) that this is unconstitutional. What they should have said is it's not unconstitutional to the Eighth Amendment. It's unconstitutional under the state of Indiana Constitution. Eighth Amendment, be damned, that applies to the general government only, not to the states. You see, the states are the problem here. The state should have should have defended itself. Said, look, I mean, our state constitution is very clear about this. You cannot do this. The state constitution is very clear. Not the US Constitution, not the Eighth Amendment. Here's the judge who's gone through law school, all oh, the U.S. score, US Constitution is supreme, and we've got incorporation. Here's the issue. This judge in this particular decision messed up from the beginning. So therefore, then it's appealed. The Court of Appeals of Indiana affirmed the decision, but the Indiana Supreme Court reversed, holding that the excessive fines clause constrains only federal action and isn't applicable to the two state in, in positions. There's the problem. The state court said, look, you can't you can't challenge uh, you can't challenge this decision on the Eighth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, that applies only to the federal government, right? But if the court, the lower court had said, well, this violates the Indiana state constitution, this would be a whole new ball game, right? But they didn't. So they messed up by believing in incorporation from the beginning. This is when Neil Gorsuch standing up there and saying, 2018, who doesn't think that incorporation is the law of the land? Well, clearly these knuckleheads in Indiana don't this dumb judge doesn't because if he had just done the right thing here we be been we'd be in a whole different situation whole new ball game but nope 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 we're gonna we're gonna appeal to the Eighth Amendment. so we get a nine nothing decision uh, and of course you can read through the rest of the arguments that the state court the state of Indiana made. Um, and it goes through several federal cases, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I'm not going to read that. But I want to read the decision, which was read by uh, read from the grave, practically, of, of Justice Ginsburg. I think this was done on purpose, right, to show that she's still alive and kicking. Um, so, I mean, she's got her workout calendar. She's still alive and kicking. And, uh, you know, bless her heart. I hope I would she I don't wish ill on anybody, so I hope she's still alive and kicking. Uh, but here we some political stunt. Hey, look, I'm still here to alleviate the fears of all these people that want to give two kidneys, a lung, and their heart to Ginsburg, so they will die and she will live. So here we go. Uh, Ginsburg reads the majority opinion, the, uh, the the only opinion of the court, really. I mean, except for the the concurring opinions. Uh, she says this very clearly. Quote. When ratified in 1791, the Bill of Rights applied only to the federal government. And she cites Baron v. Baltimore. The constitutional amendments adopted in the aftermath of the Civil War, however, fundamentally altered our country's federal system. And this is, they're using the McDonald v. Heller, or McDonald v. Chicago decision, excuse me, not the Heller, but McDonald v. Chicago decision. See, this is ingenious on the part of the lefties. On the bench, because they're using a decision that all the righties are going to say, oh, yes, 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 cheer. We like McDonald v. Chicago. We like that. We like that. They're not going back to the stupid incorporation decisions from 50 years ago. Nope, nope, nope. They're going to this one because that's the one that, well, this gave us the Second Amendment, right? It incorporated the Second Amendment, so we're going to use that one against the right. And that's why that decision was disastrous. You see, awful, awful decision. With only a handful of exceptions, this court has held that the 14th Amendment's due process clause incorporates the protections contained in the Bill of Rights, rendering them applicable to the states. A Bill of Rights protection is incorporated, we have explained, if it is fundamental to our scheme of ordered liberty or deeply ruled in this nation's history and tradition. Incorporated Bill of Rights guarantees are enforced against the states under the 14th Amendment according to the same standards that protect those personal rights against federal encroachment. Thus, if a Bill of Rights protection is incorporated, there is no daylight between the federal and state conduct it prohibits or requires. All right, so then they go through a long explanation of um, this uh, ratification of the 14th Amendment and how this was uh, part of, Uh, The English tradition. I mean, no one would no one would question whether uh, excessive fines or the uh, the uh, opposition to excessive fines was certainly part of the English legal tradition. No one would question that. That's beyond question. The question then becomes, uh, is the 14th Amendment, though, the vehicle by which the states are going to uh, be rendered impotent by the general government? And essentially, that's what's happened here. Now, again, think back to the original thing that I said. The problem is that the state court, the judge, relied on the Eighth Amendment. Stupid, stupid, stupid. All he had to do is say, this is unconstitutional according to the Indiana Constitution. You can't do it. That's it. It would have stopped the entire issue in its tracks. There would have been no appeal. I don't think. What, what appeal would you have had? The state then would have had to appeal based on what? What would they have appealed? Appeal, I mean, they would have appealed on a decision based on the state constitution. And then you might have had appeal to the the Supreme Court if Tims wanted to appeal it on uh, an incorporation Eighth Amendment ground. But that could have happened. But I firmly, I don't firmly believe that it would have made it past the state court system. Because how can you say that it doesn't? violate the Indiana state constitution. In fact, the majority of opinion, the majority opinion in this says it right here. Section two, the state of Indiana does not meaningfully challenge the case for incorporating the excessive fines clause as a general matter. Instead, the state argues that the clause does not apply to its use of civil in rem forfeitures because, okay, but the state constitution clearly says, um, that this is illegal. And I think I, I read this in here somewhere, and I can't remember where it was. So excuse me for saying um, that this was uh, part of the state constitution. But I can almost guarantee you there's an excessive fines uh, part of the Indiana state constitution. It's not just... Um, it's not just the U.S. Constitution. One thing I found interesting is they're using Fleming's *Documentary History of Reconstruction*, which is the best book on, on Reconstruction. But I'm surprised some progressives dusted this thing off because um, usually, if you go through that book, it's gonna it's going to disrupt virtually everything they say. Um. So, anyways, that that's just funny. I, I found that one of their uh, one of their sources was that particular book. Um, so we have that issue, and then we got we've got Gorsuch getting out there saying, you know what? Um, the fact is, this is um, this has to be uh, incorporated. But let me get to Clarence Thomas's concurring opinion. Um, he says, I agree with the court that the 14th Amendment makes the 8th Amendment's prohibition on excessive fines fully applicable to the states, but I cannot agree with the route the court takes to reach this conclusion. Instead of reading the 14th Amendment's due process clause to encompass a substantive right that has nothing to do with process, I would hold that the right to be free from excessive fines is one of the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States protected by the 14th Amendment. Uh, now, he, what does due process actually mean is a question here. Due process, of course, were all the proper procedures followed in denying someone their property. If that's the case, then you were not denied your due process. But if we believe in substantive due process, meaning that because I own property, I should be able to take it wherever I want, and you can't pass laws prohibiting that, well, that's something entirely different. Um, This is the same argument Southerners were using in the 1850s in taking slaves into the Western territories. Now, um, that's a Fifth Amendment argument essentially. Uh, and that's what they were saying. And of course, they were, this is what the Supreme Court upheld in Dred Scott. So do you believe in the Dred Scott decision? If you do, then you believe, or then if you believe in substantive due process, then you believe in the Dred Scott decision. You should be called out for that. So you believe in Dred Scott. You believe in Hugo Black, the KKK judge. You believe in that, huh? Point him back in that direction. So uh, Thomas actually cites the McDonald decision, of course, of course he's going to cite that, because that's the, the, the pinnacle, the zenith for these conservatives in this uh, issue of incorporation, because it is the Second Amendment. Now Thomas goes, because the oxymoronic substantive due process doctrine is no basis in the Constitution, It is usurping that the court has been unable to, I'm sorry, it's been unsurprising, excuse me, that the court has been unable to adhere to any guiding principle to distinguish fundamental rights that warrant protection from non fundamental rights that do not. And because the court's substantive due process precedents allow the court to fashion fundamental rights without any textual constraints, it is equally unsurprising that among these precedents are some of the court's most notoriously incorrect decisions. And he cites Roe v. Wade, Red Scott v. Sanford. What's interesting about that, and he does bring up Dred Scott v. Sanford, so he's getting into substantive process. He's saying, look, that's a bad decision, but yet all these lefties, so I love it that he does this. Okay, that's, that's great for Thomas to point that out. But he's wrong, then, about incorporation. Because then he gets into, when the 14th Amendment was ratified, the terms privileges and immunities had an established meaning as synonyms for rights. Now, what were those rights they were talking about? Well... <laughs> Life, liberty, and property. (laughs) Uh, The right to own property and the right to sit on juries. Essentially, that's what we're looking at here because you have to look at the context of the, uh, the legislation that this amendment was designed to uphold, which were the Civil Rights Acts at the time. And essentially, all the Republicans wanted was for someone to be able to sit on juries and own property. Now we can look at, well, is this excessive fines? No, this these are state issues. Now everyone says, well, the states were violating these things. So then, uh, then invalidate it based on the state constitution. Don't go to the U.S. Constitution. It creates a minefield that we're never going to get out of. He says, the question here is whether the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on excessive fines was considered such a right, meaning and an inalienable right of all men given legal effect by the codification of the Constitution's text. He says the excessive fines clause was taken verbatim from the English Bill of Rights, um, which is true. Um, The principle was reiterated in the first statute of Westminster, which is true. During the reign of the Stuarts, leading up to the Glorious Revolution, fines were a flashpoint in the constitutional political struggles, which is true. Um, Now, and then he gets into... Uh, The Declaration, uh, freedom from excessive fines was considered indisputably an ancient right of the subject in the Declaration of Rights, indictment against James II, I'm sorry, Declaration of Rights. Um, You do have, of course, in the Declaration of Independence, there is a mention of uh, this type of activity, which was problematic. Uh, And then he, of course, gets into... um, the ratification of the Constitution. He says, When the states were considering whether to ratify the Constitution, advocates for a separate Bill of Rights emphasized the need for an explicit prohibition on excessive fines mirroring the English prohibition. In colonial times, fines were the drudge horse of criminal justice, probably the most common form of punishment. To some, this fact made a constitutional prohibition on excessive fines all the more important. Now, this is an interesting part of this, because he starts using the anti-federalists. As the well-known anti-federalist Brutus argued in an essay, a prohibition on excessive fines was essential to the security of liberty. But again, this was only in in respect to the general government. Patrick Henry said the same thing. Governor Randolph responded to Henry arguing that Virginia's charter was nothing more than an investiture in the hands of the Virginia citizens of those rights which belonged to British subjects. According to Randolph, the exclusion of excessive bail and fines would follow of itself without a bill of rights. For such fines would never impose absent corruption in the House of Representatives, Senate and President, or judges acting contrary to justice. Now, again, this is all about the central government. For all the debate about whether an explicit prohibition on excessive fines is necessary in the federal constitution, all agreed that the prohibition on excessive fines was a well-established and fundamental right of citizenship. All this is true. All this is true. But it only applied to the general government. Now, then he brings up Joseph's Story. Joseph's Story's claim to fame is that he takes the arguments of the opponents of the Constitution, flips it on its head, and says, because the opponents said we had a national government, we have a national government. That's the problem with Joseph's Story. And why Joseph's Story is so dangerous. Now, then he goes to the 14th Amendment, and he uses Eric Foner. Uh, the prohibition on excessive fines remained fundamental at the time of the 14th Amendment. In 1868, 35 of the 37 state constitutions expressly prohibited excessive fines. Nonetheless, the court notes abuses of fines continued, especially through the black codes adopted in several states. So this should have been a, a situation where the states then declared these things unconstitutional. And he says, well, of course, the authors of the 14th Amendment were aware of this. They wanted to knock it down. Um, he says examples abound. One congressman noted that Alabama's aristocratic and anti-republican laws, almost reenacting slavery among other harsh inflictions, impose a fine of fifty dollars and six-month imprisonment on any servant or laborer, white or black, who loiters away his time or is stubborn or refractory. Um, these are vagrancy laws, and of course, this is when you get into the the opposition to the Black Codes on vagrancy statutes. So you can't you can't have a vagrancy law anymore in any state because, uh, supposedly, of the 14th Amendment. Um, Now, he says, These and other examples of excessive fines from the historical record informed the nation's consideration of the 14th Amendment, but it didn't mean that this is what people said it would do when it was ratified. The attention given to abusive fines at the time of the 14th Amendment, along with the ubiquity of state excessive fines provisions, demonstrates that the public continued to understand the prohibition on excessive fines to be a fundamental right of American citizenship. No one's denying that, but did the does the Fourteenth Amendment knock these things down? No, no, no. Uh, one of the one of the individuals during the ratification, of the, or actually the debate on the Fourteenth, stood up and said, "Well, you know what? The Bill of Rights are already incorporated against the states because of the supremacy clause." And uh, one of the other congressmen stood up and said, "Uh, wait a second, here. Are you sure you know what you're talking about here? Because you know." We had Barron v. Baltimore. We all know that the Bill of Rights didn't apply to the states. Madison wanted that to happen, but was rebuffed in that. So I think you're wrong. And they were 100% right about that. And of course, we have the slaughterhouse cases, which clearly say this is the case. Yet, we go forward in time, and because of judges legislating from the bench, making stuff up as they go, this is what we get. So Thomas concludes, the right against excessive fines traces its lineage back to English law nearly a millennium. And from the founding of our country, it has been consistently recognized as a core right worthy of constitutional protection. As a constitutionally enumerated right understood to be a privilege of American citizenship, the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on excessive fines applies in full to the states. Stupid Stupid argument, because it doesn't. The state constitutions do this. Thomas even points it out, 35 of 37. I bet you could go through every state constitution and, f- and find if in Indiana there is a prohibition on excessive fines. I can almost guarantee you there is. Now, I haven't looked at it, but I can almost guarantee you there is. So uh, we should be looking at that constitution. We should be examining that constitution. Uh, not the... Uh, the stupid situation of Clarence Thomas saying that, uh, well, this is an Eighth Amendment issue. Eighth Amendment issue. In fact, let me just say this. Um, I pulled up the Indiana Constitution right here. Section 16 of the Indiana Constitution. Excessive bail shall not be required. Excessive fines shall not be imposed. Cruel and unusual punishment shall not be inflicted. Any All penalties shall be proportioned to the nature of the offense. So all you had to do was say that this this fine uh, for from from Mr. Timms violated Section 16 of the Indiana Constitution. That's all you would have had to have said. But yet, that's not what we did. So, therein lies the problem. It started from the beginning in this particular issue, from the beginning. So, that's my position on all of this. I mean, what are you going to do? Well, you got to come up, you got to get judges. You got to get people that uh, are going to understand that um, you got to appeal to the state court first. You got to—I'm sorry—state constitution first. And if you do that, well, you're going to have better decisions. So I think that's where we are, uh, and I hope this answered the question uh, that you that you asked. This one listener asked, and thanks for sending that in. You know, send me more. I've got all coming. I, mean, I can answer questions all day. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. I will see you next time.